0: I'm Scott Weatherly. Welcome to 20th Century Geek. It's April, folks, which means spring is in the air, days are getting longer, and I wanted to cover something a little lighter. Also, we've had April's Fool's Day, so what better subject to cover this month than sitcoms? In particular, British sitcoms, and you guessed it, of the 20th century. Now, I appreciate that comedy is subjective, and there are jokes that will make me cry with laughter, that will leave others cold. So I want to open this up from the start. I'm going to be talking about two of my favorite sitcoms, but if there's any that you love that you do not think gets enough love and attention, please let me know and we can spread the laughter. So this month, I'm going to be covering two shows that I love, one that in my opinion does not get enough attention and another that has a dedicated fan base. I'm not going to compare the two as they are very different shows. I've chosen them simply to highlight how different these shows can be. The two that I'll be covering are the political satire Yes Minister and its sequel Yes Prime Minister, and the space farce Red Dwarf. show today I'm going to focus on Yes Minister. The misadventures of the Minister of the Department of Administrative Affairs Jim Hacker and his civil service colleagues Sir Humphrey Appleby and Bernard Woolley. The show is simple in its setup but incredibly brave and complex in its structure and content. Up front I would suggest that without Yes Minister you would not have the thick of it and in the loop or even things like House of Cards uh, or Alpha House Whereas most workplace sitcoms before have been placed in situations that most people would know or identify with Yes Minister lifted the lid on the corridors of power and addressed what most people already knew or believed to be true that politicians and civil servants are no different to anyone else working in an office Generally, they don't know what's going on around them The show was in fact very popular with several key politicians of the time including then Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher we will get into that in more detail later on. For now, let's go back to the genesis of the show.
1: I'm trapped.
2: <laughs> Completely
1: trapped. I can't tell the PM. I can't not tell the PM. I see. I was
3: just wondering, Minister, if we might not use the Rhodesia solution.
4: You excel yourself. (laughs) Of course, Minister, the Rhodesia solution. What are you talking about? Oil sanctions, remember? A member of the government was told about the way British companies were sanction-busting. What did he do? He told the Prime Minister. What did he do? He told the Prime Minister in such a way that the Prime Minister didn't hear him. Oh. But you mean I should uh, mumble it or something in the division? Minister, you write a note. very faint pencil. (laughs) In fact, no, Minister, it's awfully obvious. You write a note which is susceptible of misinterpretation. Oh,
1: I see. Dear Prime Minister, it has come to my attention that the Italian red terrorists are getting hold of British top secret bomb making equipment. How do you
4: misinterpret that? You can't. Well,
1: exactly.
4: So you don't write that? You use a more circumspect style and you avoid any mention of bombs or terrorists or any of that sort of thing. That'd be rather difficult. Is that what it's all about? You say, Bernard, write this down. My attention has been drawn on a personal basis to information which suggests the possibility of certain irregularities under section... Section 1 of the Import, Export and Customs Powers, Defence Act, 1939C. Thank you, Bernard. (laughs) You then go on to suggest that somebody else should do something about it. Prima facie evidence suggests that there could be a case for further investigation to establish whether or not inquiries should be put in hand. And then you smudge it all over. (laughs) it should be stressed that available information is limited and relevant facts could be difficult to establish with any degree of certainty I see then if there were an inquiry you'd be in the clear and everybody would understand that the busy PM might not have grasped the full implications of such a letter he certainly would that's most unclear thank you <laughs> then you arrange for the letter to arrive at number 10 on the day the PM leaves for an overseas summit so there's also doubt about whether it was the PM or the acting PM who read the note And so the whole thing is written off as a breakdown in communications. Everybody's in the clear and everybody can get on with their business. Including the Red Terrorists. Exactly.
0: (laughs) The show was written by Anthony Jay and Jonathan Lynn. Based on an idea by Jay and information from well-placed members within the British government. However, we're getting ahead of ourselves. In fact, when Anthony Jay started in the television industry, he didn't want to be a writer at all. He started out wanting to be a commentator on BBC Cricket. But as he progressed, it never came to pass, and he kept moving away from that area of the industry. Soon after starting his career, he joined That Was The Week That Was, a satirical comedy show that was popular in the early 1960s. Jay became a writer, contributing sketches and monologues. It was while working on this show that he met and became good friends with Monty Python alum, John Cleese. While they enjoyed working on the show, they wanted to try other things, and so went into business together making comedy training videos. The idea was that every training video of the time was based around how to do the job in the best way possible. So they would produce videos showing the worst way possible. Scenarios and behaviours that you just would not want to see on the job. A sort of what not to do at work. These became incredibly popular. And so to help out, Cleese brought in another friend, Jonathan Lynn. Over the years, Anthony Jay had formulated the germ of the idea about a comedy taking place in Whitehall, the building in which government was carried out in Britain. Seeing in Lynn someone who could help develop the idea, he proposed it. At the time, Lynn was not interested, saying that he didn't see that politics could be funny. Jay stuck with his guns. He knew that there was so much hidden from the public view that would make great TV. He wasn't wrong. If you think about it now, since the success of Yes Minister, we have had House of Cards, twice, The Thick of It, The West Wing, and so many others. All have proven that there is drama and comedy to be taken from the machinations of politicians. Jonathan Lynn would soon come round to the idea. It could be considered that this was based mainly on his past experiences of politics and writing. Lynn had joined the Cambridge Union in his first year at the University of Cambridge thinking that he could possibly enter politics in the future. However, he soon found himself the only one that could see the farce around him. He found the young debaters there were the most pompous, self-satisfied, self-important bunch of clowns that he had ever met. He could not believe that they would behave as if they were on the government front bench. Of course, 20 years later, many of them would be. Having lost a little faith in it all, he decided that the only way that he could ever contribute to politics was to be making fun of the politicians. Once they were on the same page, they started researching the subject more, using two people that were very well placed in the government and would openly talk about it. It has been revealed that Jay and Lynn got information from two inside sources from within the government of Harold Wilson and James Callaghan. The two insiders were Marcia Williams a British Labour politician who was the first private secretary and then the political secretary of the head of the political office to the Prime Minister, Harold Wilson. The second was Lord Bernard Donoghue, a political and policy adviser to the Labour governments under Prime Ministers Harold Wilson and James Callaghan. It was also noted that the published diaries of Richard Crossman also provided inspiration. In particular, the first of these describes his battles with the Dame, his Permanent Secretary, the formidable Baroness Sharp, the first woman in Britain to hold the position. This research led to the creation of three-character structure, representing the three aspects of government that would act as the comedic conflict for the show. Firstly, Permanent Secretary Humphrey Appleby, representing the civil service. All those senior, long-serving, die-in-the-wall civil servants, maintaining a status quo, while managing the swing of policy that comes with party politics. For this role, they approached Nigel Hawthorne, who had a strong stage acting background. His ability to take on long scripts for stage plays, as well as having an excellent sense of comedic timing, held him in good stead to take on the complex monologues and verbal trickery that would be written for him. Minister James Hacker represents the politicians that constantly have to act in self-interest in order to hold on to power. In the country and within their own government. As the first of the scripts were being written the BBC always wanted Paul Eddington for the role. He had a lot of theatrical and sitcom experience having appeared previously in The Good Life. Between these two caught in the middle is Bernard Woolley, the minister's private secretary employed by the civil service. He represents the members of the civil service that are making their way up the ladder but have to manage a split loyalty between the first two. Derek Folds was working on kids' TV with Basil Brush at the time. And this was his chance to step into something more challenging. He took the opportunity and preparation very seriously, wanting to create a character with a rounded backstory. Paul Eddington was not completely convinced.
3: I met Paul he was wonderful and Nigel and we'd said hello and we started. And I got these little glasses and I put them on and I, and I started to talk a bit like that, you know. Hello. And Paul and I were in the taxi, rehearsing, and he said... He said, He said, why are you talking funny? I said, what do you mean? I, you know, he's Berner's. you uh, know, PPS. I thought I'd do something rather like that. He says, why? And he said, what have you got those glasses off? I said, it's all character stuff. I said, I he said, take the glasses off just be you. I say. I don't know how to do that. It should
0: just be you. With the characters in place, the situation could be developed. However, they needed to be careful. While the show's intent to satirise politics and government in general, it did not want to become part of the party politics. To ensure that there was no misunderstanding, the writers placed Hacker at the centre of the political spectrum. This was further reinforced by identifying his party headquarters as Central House a combination of Conservative central office and Labour's transport house. In fact, the terms Labour and Conservative are avoided throughout the series, instead using terms such as the party, or the government, and the opposition. In the first scene of the first episode, Open Government, Hacker is shown at the declaration of his constituency result wearing a white rosette while other candidates sporting the red and blue rosettes associated with the two leading British parties, the Conservatives and Labour. This approach was a success as the public were able to enjoy the show without feeling they were being preached to by any one party. The real tell, however, is the well-documented notion by members of both parties during the show's run that the show was actually satirising the other party. In fact, throughout the period of Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister, the incumbent government of the United Kingdom was conservative, with the government led by Margaret Thatcher, who was a big fan of the show. Such a big fan, in fact, that she wrote a sketch that was later performed by the cast for a charity TV show. As the show was being written, there was a lot of faith from those that were involved in it, so much, in fact, that the pilot was written and recorded without the guarantee of a series. The only cast member that was not sure was Paul Eddington. He was still not convinced of the situation, but the writers convinced him to read the script. Meet the other cast members and give it a go. However, after being recorded, the pilot was not aired for almost a year, due to concerns that broadcasting a political comedy in an election year would affect how people perceived the show. The first episode was aired after the election on 20th February 1980. The show ran for three series as Yes Minister between 1980 and 1982. It returned for a special in 1984 in which, due to a series of events, the Minister becomes Prime Minister. This could have been the end. Jim Hacker had reached the top of the power tree within Whitehall. The writers didn't think so, though. They thought there was more to tell. So in 1986, the show returned as Yes Prime Minister running for a further two series in 1986 and 1987. As Yes Minister, the show won the BAFTA Award for Best Comedy Series each year it aired. As Yes Prime Minister, it was shortlisted for Best Comedy Series for both 1986 and 1987. For his role as Sir Humphrey Appleby, Nigel Hawthorne won the BAFTA for Best Light Entertainment Performance four times, 1981, 82, 86 and 87. Paul Leddington was also nominated for his role as James Hacker on all four of these occasions. More recently, in 2004, Yes Minister came sixth in a BBC poll to find Britain's best sitcom. The show also placed 14th in Channel 4's The Ultimate Sitcom, a poll conducted by people who work in sitcoms. Despite not receiving the attention and remembrance that it deserves, even now, years later, the show is loved and admired by those that know of it. It may well have been forgotten, or not even found by many more recent viewers, but everyone watching political-focused TV shows today is feeling its influence.
2: Uh,
3: He's going to say something new and radical in the broadcast.
4: What, that silly grand design? Bernard, that was precisely what you had to avoid. How did this come about? I shall need a very good explanation. Well, he's very keen on it. What's that got to do with it? Things don't happen just because Prime Ministers are very keen on them. Neville Chamberlain was very keen on peace. <laughs> he thinks he thinks it's a vote winner. Ah, that's more serious to What makes him think that? Well, the party who had an opinion poll done, it seems all the voters are in favour of bringing back National Service. We'll have another opinion poll done, showing the voters are against bringing back National Service. <laughs> well, we can't be for it and oh, against Of course they can, Bernard. Have you ever been surveyed? Yes. Well, not me, actually. My house. Oh, I see what you're <laughs> <laughs>
2: well,
4: Bernard, you know what happens. A nice young lady comes up to you. Obviously, you want to create a good impression. You don't want to look a fool, do you? Uh, no. no. So she starts asking you some questions. Mr Woolley, are you worried about the number of young people without jobs? Yes. Are you worried about the rise in crime among teenagers? Yes. Do you think there's a lack of discipline in our comprehensive schools? Yes. Do you think young people welcome some authority and leadership in their lives? Yes. Do you think they respond to a challenge? Yes. Would you be in favour of reintroducing national service? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I suppose I might. Yes or no? Yes. Of course you would, Bernard. After all you've told, you you can't say no to that. (laughs) So, they don't mention the first five questions, they publish the last one. Is that really what they do? Well, not the reputable ones, no, but there aren't many of those. (laughs) So, alternatively, the young lady can get the opposite result. How? Mr Woolley, are you worried about the danger of war? Yes. Are you worried about the growth of armaments? Yes. Uh, Do you think there's a danger in giving young people guns and teaching them how to kill? Yes. Do you think it's wrong to force people to take up arms against their will? Yes. Would you oppose the reintroduction of... National Service. Yes. The perfect balanced sample.
0: In a two thousand and four documentary, Armando Anucci suggested that Yes Minister should be considered in the same way as George Orwell's nineteen eighty-four. In that it has influenced how we view the state and government. Although Jonathan Lynn believes that the word spin entered the political vocabulary after the series. Iannucci suggests that the show taught us how to unpick the verbal tricks that politicians think they can get away with in front of the cameras. The series depicted the media consciousness of politicians, reflecting the public relations training they undergo to help them deal with interviews and reading from cue effectively. This is particularly evident in the episode The Ministerial Broadcast, in which Hacker is advised on the effects of his clothes and surroundings. As an example, Let's check out a clip of Jim Hacker explaining how to answer questions in comparison to Michael Howard answering Jeremy Paxman.
1: I was entitled to express my views, I was entitled to be consulted, I, I was not entitled to instruct Derek Lewis and I did not instruct him. This is how you deal with questions. If you have nothing to say, say nothing. Better still have something to say and say it. Did I you did threaten not, to overrule him? I did not overrule Derek. Did Lewis. you threaten to overrule him? I took advice on what I could or could not did do. Did you threaten and to overrule I him, Mr. Howard? I acted scrupulously in accordance with that advice. Pay no attention to the question. Just make your own statement. I, I'm sorry. It's quite straight. You yes can put or the or no. question, and it's it's I will, straight, I will yes give or you no an answer. answer. Did you threaten to overrule him? Then, if they ask the question again, what you say is that's not the question. I think the real question is, and then you make another statement of your own. <laughs> I know you're not answering the question whether you threatened well, to the, overrule him. The, the important aspect of this, which it's very clear to bear in mind...
0: In the episode A Conflict of Interests, Jim Hacker explains the various political stances of Britain's newspapers through their readers. This may be a little dated, but it does highlight a notion of how the public can be grouped and pandered to in different ways.
2: The only
4: way to understand the press is to remember that they pander to their readers' prejudices. Don't tell me about the press. I know exactly who reads the papers. The Daily Mirror is read by people who think
1: they run the country. The Guardian is read by people who think they ought to run the country. The Times is read by the people who actually do run the country. The Daily Mail is read by the wives of the people who run the country. The Financial Times is read by people who own the country. The Morning Star is read by people who think the country ought to be run by another country. Daily Telegraph is read by people who think it is. <laughs>
4: <laughs> now, I'm Prime Minister. what about the people who read The Sun?
3: The Sun readers don't care who runs the country as long as she's got big tits.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Saturday Night Live has done great work recently taking shots at the Trump administration. These have been funny and are delivering a message in which they believe. However, Watching these, I realised how much more subtle and considered Yes Minister was. It was never intended to be personal, it was aiming wider than that. It wanted to highlight the foolishness and conflicts that are part of modern government, regardless of who is in power. If you have been paying attention to what has been going on all over the Western world, I am sure that all of the clips played on this episode may seem familiar. I think the point we can make is that, within the worlds of politics, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Up to this point, we have already mentioned, politics were not considered funny enough for a sitcom. That does not mean that it had not been the source of comedy in other forms throughout the years, dating back to the Victorian Punch magazine. However, Yes Minister proved that this form of blatant satire could be valid television. Following the success of Yes Minister, the BBC commissioned the puppet-based satirical sketch show Spitting Image, which ran from 1984 to 1996. In fact, I would state that without these shows, and the great writers and performers behind them, we would never have gotten shows like The Thick of It, Veep and Alpha House. These get incredible praise and recognition, and if you enjoyed any of these shows, I strongly, strongly recommend that you seek out and watch Yes Minister, And yes, Prime Minister. Okay, so let's get into why I enjoy the show so much. First and foremost, it's funny. I was raised on a load of premium British sitcoms. Only Fools and Horses, Porridge, Blackadder and Open All Hours, just to name a few. These are all really well written, make me laugh time and time again. And they have heart that makes me invest in them, make them even funnier and more affecting. These are warm and comfortable. I can relate to them and I have enough knowledge of the situations to roll with the comedy. While they are brilliant though, they don't challenge me. However, when I was introduced to Yes Minister, I had little to no understanding of how government worked and the show took me on a steep, steep learning curve. Lynn and Jay do not dumb down anything in this show. It demands that you keep up and educate yourself. When I first watched the show I enjoyed many of the jokes, but there were so many that went over my head. Over the years I have learnt more about how government and politics work, and what many of the words and phrases used are, and what they mean. This has meant that each time I revisit the show, I find more to enjoy, and in turn, learn more and enjoy more from the show. So the writing is strong, clever and incredibly sophisticated. But good writing is nothing if it isn't performed well. The cast came together from different backgrounds, but within a few episodes they gel so well into a brilliant comedy team. They are perfect in their roles and find the key elements that make them so iconic to me. The first person that stands out from the cast is the wonderfully Machiavellian yet charming shark that is Nigel Hawthorne's Sir Humphrey Appleby. He has the ability to rationalise any situation and ensures that the decision that needed to be made was made. He has a fundamental belief that he is always right and acts as the bastion of stability for the civil service and country against the ever-changing swathe of public opinion-driven ministers. He is the embodiment of the worst fears of what the civil service can be. And Nigel Hawthorne is an absolute gem in the role. He has the ability to get his mouth around some of the most complex and flowery dialogue. Being a stage actor, I am sure this was reasonably easy for him. But accompanying this with some of the most perfectly timed subtle and less subtle comic deliveries and reactions, you get a character that should be cherished in the same pantheon of comedy icons as Edmund Blackadder. Actually, let's give some of Humphrey's dialogue a go. From Series 1, Episode 5, The Writing on the Wall, we have... Well, Minister, if you ask for a straight answer, then I'd have to say, as far as we can see, looking at it by and large, taking one thing with another in terms of the average of departments, then in the final analysis it is probably true to say that at one end of the day, in general terms, you would probably find that, not to put too fine a point on it, there probably wasn't very much in it one way or the other, as far as one can see, at this stage.
4: Well, Minister, if you ask me for a straight answer, then I should say that, as far as we can see, looking at it by and large, taking one time with another, in terms of the average of departments, then in the final analysis, it is probably true to say that at the end of the day, in general terms, you would probably find that, not to put too fine a point on it, there probably wasn't very much in it one way or the other. (laughs) As far as one can see, at this stage.
0: (laughs) From Series 3, Episode 6, The Whiskey Priest... Oh, what an extraordinary idea. I have served 11 governments in the past 30 years. If I'd believed in all their policies, I'd have been passionately committed to keeping out of the common market and passionately committed to joining it. I'd have been utterly convinced of the rightness of nationalising steel and of denationalising it and re-nationalising it. Capital punishment? I'd have been a fervent retentionist and an ardent abolitionist. I'd have been a Keynesian and a Friedmanite. A grammar school preserver and destroyer. A nationalisation freak and a privatisation maniac. But above all, I would have been a stark, staring, raving schizophrenic.
4: I have served 11 governments in the past 30 years. If I had believed in all their policies, I would have been passionately committed to keeping out of the common market and passionately committed to going into it. I would have been utterly convinced of the rightness of nationalising steel. And of denationalizing it and renationalizing it. In capital punishment, I'd have been a fervent retentionist and an ardent abolitionist. I would have been a Keynesian and a Friedmanite, a grammar school preserver and destroyer, a nationalization freak and a privatization maniac. But above all, I would have been a stark, staring, raving schizophrenic.
0: <laughs> From Series 1 of Yes, Prime Minister, Episode 4 The Key. Prime Minister, I must protest in the strongest possible terms my profound opposition to the newly instituted practice which imposes severe and intolerable restrictions upon the ingress and egress of senior members of the hierarchy and will, in all probability, should the current deplorable innovation be perpetuated, precipitate a constriction of the channels of communication and culminate in a condition of organisational atrophy and administrative paralysis, which will render effectively impossible the coherent and coordinated discharge of the function of government within Her Majesty's United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland.
4: (laughs) I I must protest in the strongest possible terms. My profound opposition to a newly instituted practice which imposes severe and intolerable restrictions upon the ingress and egress of senior members of the hierarchy and which will, in all probability, should the current deplorable innovation be perpetuated, precipitate a constriction of the channels of communication (laughs) and culminate in a condition of organisational atrophy and administrative paralysis, which will render effectively impossible the coherent and coordinated discharge of the function of government within Her Majesty's United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. (laughs)
0: That one was a bit of a push okay so great comedic writing but while it entertains the viewer it almost feels like lynn and jay dislike nigel hawthorne pushing him to perform such complex dialogue in front of a live studio audience it's no surprise that he went on to win so many awards for this role while he may be my favorite character this is not a lone man performance the rest of the cast are strong Paul Eddington has an amazing ability to portray a series of reactions and emotions with his face. A tale being told in seconds, simply by great reactions. This ability pairs so well with Nigel Hawthorne's verbal gymnastics. They're like sparring partners throwing comedic punches at one another. Actually, they're more like professional wrestlers than boxers. They may be throwing punches, and one working for a reaction from the other, but they're working together trusting each other to provide the next move to work from there are episodes where the interaction between them is like a well choreographed fight scene with words and reactions the timing is brilliant when i asked friends and colleagues about their thoughts on sitcoms they mentioned the usual suspects but no one mentioned yes minister and i wasn't surprised to be honest there are so many great sitcoms that stand the test of time and are rightly held up as classics However, it further fueled my belief that taken as one show, Yes Minister and Prime Minister, is possibly the most underappreciated British sitcom. This is a comedy show that will not only make you laugh, it will make you think. It will challenge what you believe and what you know about who is running Great Britain. When I was in school, it was always a good day when the teacher rolled in a TV. At the least, it meant the lesson was going to be a breeze. At the best, it meant we would get to watch something good. Often in history lessons, this meant an episode of Blackadder. Usually, Series 4, Blackadder Goes Forth. It was a strangely entertaining and distracting learning tool that would help you with a point or theme being learned, rather than actual historical facts. However, the point is, it worked. And while Blackadder Goes Forth has no doubt taught a huge number of students something about World War I, I think, yes, Minister could and should have been used in the same way. While many of the themes and government practices are still valid, in fact in some cases they are more valid now than they were before, the show is also a time capsule. It provides an understanding of the social and political landscape of the early 1980s, whether this is the state of the European Union, grammar schools or unions. These are presented in some of the best and most concise sound bites, not to come out of the actual government.
1: I don't sound pompous but the European ideas are our best hope of
4: avoiding narrow national self-interest. Yeah, that doesn't sound pompous minister oh, Good. merely inaccurate <laughs> <laughs> listen, humble vessel.
1: Europe is a community of nations dedicated towards one goal Oh, <laughs> oh
4: May we share the joke oh, minister <laughs> now, let's look at this objectively. It is a game played for national interests and always was. Why do you suppose we went into it? strengthen the brotherhood of free Western nations. Oh, really? We went in to screw the French by splitting them off from the Germans. <laughs> well, why did the French go into it then? Well, to protect their inefficient farmers from commercial competition. It <laughs> certainly doesn't apply to the Germans. No, no, they went in to cleanse themselves of genocide and apply for readmission to the human race.
2: <laughs> Never
4: such appalling cynicism. Oh, well, at least the small nations didn't go into it for selfish reasons. Really? Luxembourg's in it for the perks. They capital of the EEC, all that foreign money pouring in. Very sensible central location. With the administration in Brussels and the parliament in Strasbourg, (laughs) Minister, it's like having the the House of Commons in Swindon and the civil service in Kettering. (laughs) If this were true, why would the other nations have been trying to get in? Such as? Well, take the Greeks. Actually, I find it difficult to take the Greeks. (laughs) Open-minded as I am about foreigners, as you both well know. What will they want out of it? An olive mountain and a red Retsina lake. I just don't accept any of this. Oh, conference. I'm so sorry, Minister. I suppose some of your best friends are Greeks. Right? Uh, <laughs> no, very dry.
0: <laughs> and here is one more.
1: Look what's happened to education in this country. This is a question from a religious studies paper. Which do you prefer, atom bombs or charity? <laughs> <laughs> Maths has become politicised. If it costs £5 billion a year to maintain Britain's nuclear defences and £75 a year to feed a starving African child, how many African children could be saved from starvation if the Ministry of Defence abandoned nuclear weapons?
4: That's easy. None. They'd spend it all on conventional weapons.
1: In
2: any
4: case, it's just a sum, 5 billion divided by 75. But the children aren't learning how to do the sums. No, indeed, but the local education authorities might argue that they don't need to. They all have pocket calculators. But they all need to know how it's done. Look, we were all taught basic arithmetic, weren't we? Were we? What's 3,947 divided by 73? (laughs) I... Oh, I'd need a pencil and paper to do that. No, never mind that. (laughs) When I left school. But now you'd use a calculator. D- that's not the point. I mean, look at Latin. Hardly anybody knows that nowadays. Tempera mutanta, no et mutamor <laughs> <laughs>
2: Times
4: change, and we change with the times. <laughs> not precisely. See, tacuisses, philosophus mensisays. <laughs> what does that If you'd kept your mouth shut, we might have thought you were clever. <laughs> You, Prime Minister no that's the translation
3: uh, no one would ever have thought Sir Humphrey was saying that about you go away Bernard please.
1: I can't believe it Humphrey you had a conventional strict academic
4: upbringing are you denying the value of it well what's the use of it I can't even call upon it in conversation with the Prime Minister of Great Britain <laughs> education in this country is a disaster We're supposed to be preparing children for a working life. Three-quarters of the time, they're bored stiff. Well, I should have thought that being bored stiff for three-quarters of the time was an excellent preparation for working life.
2: The school leaving
4: age was raised to 16 so that they could learn more, and they're learning less. We didn't raise it to enable them to learn more. We raised it to keep teenagers off the job market and hold down the unemployment figures. Are you saying there's nothing wrong with education in this country? No, of course not, Prime Minister. It's a joke. It's always been a joke. And as long as you leave it in the hands of the local councillors, it will remain a joke. I mean, half of them are your enemies anyway, and the other half are the sort of friends that make you prefer your enemies.
2: What are you saying?
4: I'm saying that education will never get any better as long as it's subject to all that tomfoolery in the town halls. I mean, just imagine what would happen if you put defence in the hands of the local authorities. Defense? Yes, give the local councils a hundred million each and ask them to defend themselves. We wouldn't have to worry about the Russians, we'd have a civil war in three weeks.
0: <laughs> okay, so, I hope that if you are new to Yes Minister, I have shown you how good the show is, and you will go out and find some episodes. Many are actually freely available on YouTube. If you are a fan, I hope you've enjoyed the show and I would love to know what you think of the series. For this show, I am coming to the end of my term in office. So I hope you've enjoyed it and I hope to hear from you. Please engage with me. If you, if you have sitcoms that you want to talk about or you think I should mention and don't get enough appreciation, let me know. Follow me on Twitter, at 20th Century Geek, or on Facebook, also Facebook slash 20th Century Geek, uh, I'm on Instagram under 20th Century Geek. I'm also on Tumblr. The blog is now 20th Century Geek. It's all a pretty much solid theme, really. Um, or please email me 20th Century Geek at gmail.com. So I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope you've had some laughs. And I hope you come back for the next show when I'm going to be jumping three million years into deep space and joining the boys on the Red Dwarf. Thank you for listening and see you again soon. Yeah.